Hello. Welcome back to another edition of the Three Good Things podcast, where you guess it, we talk about three good things. Today, we have the fantastic guest, Nick Sharma, for the podcast, and let's just jump into it. Nick is the CEO of Sharma Brands, an agency that advises some of your favorite brands, including Caraway Pans, House, Judy, and Hydrant. He's commonly known as the DTC guy on the internet, but what most people don't know about him, fun facts, is that he thinks sushi is overrated, we'll get into that, and SoulCycle is better than Peloton, which is a hot take, but I kind of agree with too. Um, It's the truth. Welcome to the pod, Nick. Thank you for having me. First time here. I'm excited to be here. (laughs) Nick's joking. It's actually his second time here. Um, Nick is our first return podcast guest. So thank you so much for coming back on the pod. Um, it's always great to have uh, a return guest and hoping that we get a little deeper into actual DTC conversations because the last episode was very much just like talking about basketball. Bashing the Suns. Yeah. So we'll get into DTC stuff a little bit more here, but kind of give me uh, your um, viewpoint right now of, of where you're at in your career, how you got to where you are, and then we'll jump into a couple DTC things. Damn, that's a deep start. <laughs> um, where I'm at in my career is an interesting question. Uh, honestly, I feel like I'm cruising. I feel like I've figured out like what I gotta like work really hard at, and I've just been working really hard at it. Um, but I, I, I mean, I've been in the next month or the next year or the next six months. Um, but I just kind of keep chipping away at it. Very cool. So you've been at many different companies throughout your short career so far. Uh, you're in your early 20s. Um, what has been the biggest company or place where you had like the biggest learnings? Um, honestly, probably at Hint. I was there for two years and uh, you know did a ton of different things there. Um, learned a lot about how to you know hire, how to manage teams, how to work with external vendors how to, you know, crack a whip on people, on other vendors, agencies, um, how to, you know, how to respond when your back's up against the wall and you have to get something done or, you know, you need to completely shift around performance or reshape priorities. Like a lot of just good life and business lessons were learned when I was at Hint for sure. So after Hint, how have you taken some of those learnings and apply them to either your current gig, which is being the CEO of Sharma Brands, or after Hint when you were working at a bunch of other places? I don't know. It's, I, I feel like a lot of it just became like in innate learnings or um, things that became very intuitive. Um, and, you know, whether it's like the way I guess I'll go about my day or, or emails or phone calls or meeting people or um, talking with people, it's kind of all just, um, natively in there. What do you mean by natively in there? Like, for example, um, I don't know. I don't necessarily like consciously think about how do I apply these different things? It just kind of like, it just kind of happens on its own, but there, there's definitely things I can point out that are like, Oh, but I do that because I learned that over there. Uh, or I do that because, you know, I learned that people respond better when I do this or that versus saying it that way. Do you have an example from when you were either at Hint or um, or currently where you like took one lesson that you applied at Hint or like learned at Hint maybe the hard way and then 
now you're like, okay, I know a little bit better. I've, I've gotten a little bit more experience. I'm a little bit more matured. Um, and here's like how I want to do it now that I'm seeing it for the second time or third or fourth, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, when the funnier, funniest one is like when I was at hand, when I first started there, I used to think that everybody's, um, you know, like if you come up with an idea or a strategy or something that works, that it's something that you, you should completely protect and not necessarily tell everybody because you don't want them to copy you or steal it or, you know, figure it out and do it better than you. But then when I started almost just openly sharing everything that I do that works or does really well, I realized that I actually find and attract some of the smartest people. Um, and it almost like compounds and, and builds a, uh, a better conversation that way versus just trying to like shun somebody else from seeing what I'm doing or, or, um, you know, something that I see working. So that kind of goes to like building in public, which you've been doing for a few years now. What made mm -hmm. you make that switch to, to start building entirely in public and kind of just broadcast your process? Um, honestly, in San Francisco, <laughs> I didn't have a ton of friends. And so the internet uh, and like the collective audience of the internet, whatever I had at the time, like the, a lot of those people became good friends of mine. Um, even Chris, who is, who's in this room, um, and was just up earlier, like him and I met through the internet initially, but we've become such close friends now. Um, so for me, it was actually also an outlet of like having a social life on the internet. Uh, but then I also realized that like the more, again, the more things I put out, um, especially if they were work related, I would just find really cool people, uh, that I could, you know, hang out with or talk with or, or shoot the shit with. Um, and it all comes because you kind of just like put out, like, for example, if I walk out of a meeting and I'm like, oh, that was a really interesting insight or, oh, that was a really cool learning. And I put it out on Twitter, then there's a very good chance I'll find like three or four other people who reach out and, and they want to just talk about it or they've had some kind of experience with it or, you know, something around it. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it just, it just sparks cooler conversation and you can meet cool people. Like one of my best friends today, David Perel, um, we found each other years ago, just like writing things on the internet. And, and, you know, now we've like traveled, um, so much together. We hang out all the time. We're just like really good friends, but it's all because of both of us putting things out on the internet, which sounds really creepy, but it's weird how it happens. <laughs> no, so. I, I, uh, I've, I fully agree with that. And I think it took me a little bit longer in just general life um, to kind of start that. But like this podcast was started about three months ago and it came from that where I was like on after doing like Suns Twitter, I would say, where I was just like writing shit posting about like Phoenix Suns takes and things like that. Uh, it uh -huh. became like, can I get into different areas uh, within Twitter that I find really interesting. So it became like this startup DTC VC Twitter area. Um, and then I wanted to do the daily podcast just as a matter of creating something every day. And that motivation or just like idea became like, let's just put stuff out and see if people um, boomerang it back to me or if like I can change kind of what my brand name is in, in the world. Because before that, everything I was doing was internally. It was at big tech corporations. Um, obviously, it was like probably impactful. But aside from the company I worked for, 
it wasn't necessarily like getting a lot of exposure or making a big impact. Um, and at sure. the, and at, at a very like core level, I wasn't meeting new people. I would like meet with different people within the same company, which is great, but um, I wouldn't learn about different experiences and different perspectives without um, putting stuff out into the into the world. So. Um, kind of on, on that note, how did you pivot in either your mental framework or your mental model when you were in San Francisco to start like putting things out and what did you originally start with? Um, that's a good question. I actually don't really know when I was, um, before I even got to hint, I, I used to work on, um, social media for different celebrities. And so I used my own Twitter a lot of times just to like test things out um, or just kind of like mess around. And then even when I got to Hint, it was, for example, it, like if you scroll back on Hint's tweets to like mid-2017, you'll notice, or like early 2017 to, um, to mid-2017, you'll notice a huge shift in the way that, you know, the tweets were being put out. And like that was something, for example, that I tested on my own Twitter account because I had probably like 20,000 followers at the time Mm -hmm. just to see what the reaction would be and how it would kind of play out. And then after seeing it had some success, then I was like, all right, now this is something, you know, we'll test out on on the brand account. So a lot of times I would just use my own account um, to to just test things out. Um, and then I don't really know when I started kind of more in the DTC or like, uh, commerce or CPG space, but I would say it was probably closer to like mid to the end of 2018 when I started to, or probably like maybe like early 2018 or mid 2018 when I would just start to pick up on certain things that would do really well for engagement on my account. I was like, oh, that's interesting. So if I tweet about this, this gets a lot more engagement. Maybe I should try to do more about this. And basically, I mean, basically it's like at a macro level, just A-B testing a bunch of shit and seeing what works and then going in on that. Like you'll notice on my Twitter account today, there's pretty much nothing that's not DTC related mm-hmm. because I know it's just not going to do well. Or like if people, <clears throat> if people like ask me for you know, like, Hey, I'm doing this. Do you mind tweeting about it? I'm like, yeah, I can, but it's just not going to get any impressions. Like if I tweet something that's smart about DTC, it might pick up a hundred thousand impressions. But if I just put out a tweet about something that you want me to put out, which I have no problem doing because you're a homie, it's like, it's just not going to do well. And it just looks dumb. Interesting. When you say do well, how much of it is part of that AB testing strategy? of like, I'm trying to figure out if this is going to get the impressions or the analytics on my own account versus like, I'm putting value out into the world and I don't really care about the metrics. Like, how do you decide what to A-B test and what to kind of just put out and see how it does? Um, I would say it's like, I mean, it, it, it just honestly depends on like <laughs> how busy I am at the time. For example, <laughs> okay. if... um. If it's a busy week, I'm probably barely tweeting unless it's like something that, you know, just comes out. But like, for example, like a week ago, one of my friends, Spencer, came to New York and we grabbed drinks and we took a picture together. And I was like, this is a special picture. I'm going to put this out on Twitter and see if it does well. Uh, And I'll just keep it up regardless because he's a he's a good friend. Um, But a lot of most of the tweets I put up are somewhat related to 
to work. Interesting. So then when you're looking at it from a brand perspective, how do you think about a tweet doing well or a, a like thread or however, like when you think of an engagement for a brand, let's say Hint or even some of the brands you currently work with, um, what does uh-huh. doing well mean? And are those metrics kind of predefined or is it more of a longer term AV strategy of, okay, this one didn't really hit that well. So let's maybe do a couple more and see if those actually get the engagement that we're looking for. Um, well, for a brand, it's different. Like for my personal Twitter account, I could honestly care less what mm-hmm. does well and what doesn't do well. Obviously you want to get, you know, numbers that do well cause it, it helps you overall. But, um, but, uh, for like a brand account, I mean, I haven't run like brand social media in a couple of years, but it would, I mean, the things that we look for or that I would say I, I used to look for all the time when it comes to Twitter, you want to look at, um, just the pure engagement rate. Uh, you want to like if it's you know if it's a Twitter brand Twitter you want to you want to put out content that's designed to live within the platform so things that don't have links um, things that are easily viewable uh, readable in a fast scrolling timeline um, things that are uh, shareable and you know worth sharing um, and then you like I always look at basically just the engagement numbers divided by impressions and look at what that that number is um for instagram it's kind of the same you want to look at things like saves and sends basically like who's how many people are are actually dming your stuff to other people is i think really important likes and comments aren't that important because those are things you can just buy nowadays um video views is a big metric for instagram i always look at because those are typically things you can't buy actually i don't think you can buy video views at all on organic posts you can buy likes comments but you can't buy video views and that's also a true indicator of how legit an account is um but yeah but overall i mean like from a from a for a brand's twitter strategy um i always you know, initially you try to spray and pray and kind of see what sticks. And then you just start doubling down on things that stick. Like for Hint, for example, the average person would think, oh, if it's a Hint water account, you got to start tweeting about, you know, water, hydration, blah, blah, blah. But what we realized was that actually all people want in their feed is just a break from the noise and some like kind of positive affirmations or, or happy messages or things that just make them smile. And, and um, that's stuff that used to do really, really well. Got it. So we just did more of that. So what are three things? So for example, I just read at this pod, and I've, I'm sure some, some people in the audience are curious as well, is when you're thinking of creating a, a company or a brand for yourself, or maybe you're trying to blow up your, your own company's um, social strategy, what are three uh-huh. things that, that you think um, any company should do to kind of increase their engagement or ideally i'm assuming most companies their end goal is to drive sales right they're trying to get people to actually buy and that engagement is supposed to lead to purchasing um but aside from that specifically how do you what are three things that companies can do to kind of increase their engagement um if they don't necessarily see it working right now um hold on give me a second i literally just had this cool visualization in my head Basically, I think there's like, there's two parts to it, right? One is like from an optics perspective, whatever you're putting out, is that in the most easily digestible 
um, look and feel to the person who's scrolling with their thumb at a million miles an hour. So for example, if you look at tweets that do really well, they're usually very, very well worded to a point where like a five-year-old could read it, read the tweet and understand it within the second. They're also like properly spaced out. Um, you know, you don't have run on sentences. You don't have typically sentences with more than one comma. Um, so that's like one part of it is making sure that the tweet itself is easily accessible and easy to understand. The second part is like the actual meat of the content. So, um, for example, like on, I think it was Friday, there was this article that came out, um, that I was quoted in on a website called built in. And, um, it's basically, it talks about like what's coming next in the direct to consumer space. I tweeted it out at first, basically saying something like a quote that I had in the article. And then that was one, like one sentence. The second sentence was like, see what myself, Helena and, um, Kristen said in the article below, put it up. And within five minutes, like, I don't know, two likes, I was like, all right, this is not going to do well at all. So I deleted it. I went back to the article and said, all right, how do I, how do I now take this article and almost just condense it into a tweet? Like, how do you take this eight minute long piece, put it in a tweet so that there's value up front for somebody who reads the tweet. There's no need for them to click out and then come back and hit the like button. They should be able to read this tweet, hit the like button based on what they see without clicking. And if I'm fortunate enough, then they'll click through and, and, you know, built in, will get page view and, and they'll see that my tweet was driving, um, was driving clicks. So it's like, uh, I don't know where I was going with that, but basically you want to make sure that like every tweet on its own tells something that is so valuable to that person that you earn a like without them having to click out or go anywhere. Got it. So you want to keep the user, like you said, they're scrolling like a million miles per hour. So you want to keep the user there for whatever they're reading um, and keep that engagement there so that they like it. Um, that actually is a perfect segue to this next segment of the podcast, which is a new segment that we're introducing, which is uh, quotes from the author. Insert uh, theme music here. Um, this is a note for me to edit later, but... Uh, this is called quotes from the author or quotes from the guest, I think is a better term for it, where in some cases, the guests that I have have been featured in different articles or they have their own Twitter account and we go back through time and ask them about a tweet that they tweeted oh, uh, from way back when. For you, we'll keep it pretty easy because you made a great segue to this next section, which uh, is actually the article that you were just talking about by Built In. Um, the, oh, cool. The, yeah, I might go. I might go to Twitter if we want. But um, this article is on builtin.com. It'll be in the tweet for this podcast that will drop in uh, probably an hour or two, uh, where I'll feature the three different links that we talk about. But the quote we have from Nick is: "Everybody was blowing cash on acquiring customers in hopes that customers would come back and retain the lifetime value that the company somehow came up with on an Excel spreadsheet." So. What do you mean by everybody's blowing cash on acquiring customers in hopes that customers would come back? Oh, yeah. I mean, basically, like, you know, with uh, I would say it was probably more like 2018, 2019. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, Facebook ads is crack for a performance marketer. Um, and it's 
it's whatever is more addictive than crack to like a board of directors or a CFO at a lot of these D2C brands because, you know, they basically put these things into a model and say, all right, well, if we assume, you know, we sell uh, canned coffee that, you know, people will re-up on coffee, um, you know, once every six weeks from us, then if we spend $100 to acquire this customer and they, you know, purchase a, a case of coffee for $40, then in two and a half purchases, we should be break even. And in three and a half purchases, we'll be profitable on the customer. Um, but then the problem is, is then they focus on, you know, solely revenue as one uh, data point and acquisition cost as another. And then the entire kind of organization starts to shift to focus on just customer acquisition and revenue. And you forget things like retention and building brand equity and building uh, customer experience and optimizing the, you know, um, the supply. And, but you essentially, you know, like you start to look at marketing as a, in an Excel sheet versus using, um, you know, versus like actually just thinking, okay, if, if we're acquiring a customer for a hundred dollars and they're spending $40 and, it, and we're, you know, 80% uh, margin even, which is pretty generous then that's $32 in, or sorry, that's $8 in COGS and $32 in profit on that purchase, but then we're spending 100 so we're actually underwater by like 68 or 58 um, But if we hope that they come back and buy three more times, maybe we'll be profitable and then we'll be good and we should go raise $10 million off the fact that we, we should be okay after three purchases. So instead of managing on an Excel spreadsheet, how do you suggest that people manage uh, across the board? Um, I mean, I think, you know, I think, uh, I think you've got to figure out like how, how are you profitable on the first purchase um, or at least break even? Like if you're a consumable product, you can usually get away with being break even, especially if there's a high repeat order rate. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it's a little different, too, if you're a subscription product. But if you're, for example, selling a uh, cookware set, then, you know, that's probably something that people are going to buy once every five years. You just absolutely have to be profitable on the first purchase. There's, like, there's just – any other way is just wrong. Shout out to uh, Caraway Pans. I just purchased my yes. first Caraway Pan. Um, oh, love it. I think you're a huge fan of Caraway. I'm not sure if you're an investor or an advisor. Yes, I both. am. So, yeah, great company. Um, ironically, the tweet that I came up with for this quick segment is actually on exactly what you were just talking about. On May 23rd, you said, uh, can't, you can't expect advertising to work until you have the proper product, merchandising, and messaging fit. You can't expect yeah. to put money behind something that doesn't fundamentally work. Marketing first, advertising second, content product, et cetera, first, then distribution. Yeah, it's like you can't – it's like expecting to get from New York to L.A., but the Uber or the, the private car that you're taking from the airport in L.A. to your house has a broken wheel. Like it's just not going to – it's just not going to work. Yeah, I think it's like trying to drive backwards on the highway. And Yeah, whoever says that is a genius. I don't know who said that, but that person is definitely um, a Suns fan now. Um, Let's not get too carried away here. <laughs> and then, so I have one more tweet that I'll, I'll read out, but I think um, 
we'll end the segment on this one is there's no better feeling than clearing your inbox before you get to bed. And I, I just love that tweet because yeah. Are you a, are you a zero inbox type person or a let the notifications pile on type person? No, I'm as well. Notifications is different. Notifications don't give me anxiety. A inbox that is unread is I use my inbox like my to-do list. So if I see that I have, uh, like right now, if I open Gmail, I have 57 unread emails. Uh-huh. And those are basically, and, you know, of course, like 30 of them might be just random things that I don't need to respond to. But um, those 20 are things that I need to get done before I go to sleep. Got it. Yeah, I'm a, it's, it's interesting. I have my personal email, which is just like a ton of unread emails. And I don't even look at the number anymore because the majority of it is like, it's probably past 10,000. But when it comes to work emails, I'm a zero inbox person. Like I love seeing zero unread and um, all like star stuff that I need to reply back to. Uh, Yeah. Do you have that kind of like dual mentality or do you just always have unread uh, or like you want to keep it to zero at the end of the day? Um, Yeah, I mean, I, I... It's actually kind of funny. So I was I was using Superhuman mm-hmm. religiously for like the longest time, and and then uh, like two weeks ago, somebody basically took Bame and my email and blasted out a bunch of spam, and oh, so shit. my my email yeah my email got marked as like a spam address from a lot of different inboxes, or at least that's the way I understood it. So I had to add this like extra layer of verification to my domain, which basically shows now if I send an email from my actual email now it's like you know there's like two or three layers of validation that it's actually me um and so i don't know if i can use superhuman this way or if it'll still just go to spam but uh but anyways i you know normally i use superhuman and it segments out like what's important um it segments out uh like newsletters that i get which is anything like morning brew the hustle uh, lean Lux, 2 p.m., you know, the hustle trends. Um, and then I just have other. And other is like usually just a bunch of garbage uh, or like newsletters from brands, same thing. And um, and so usually I just kind of like work around the important tab and make sure that that gets done. Uh, the only things that stay there are like if I'm, for example, if I, if somebody emailed me, or if, or if they said like, hey, you know, we're going to get back to you by Tuesday, then I'll just leave it in my inbox so that I don't forget. Otherwise, everything else gets archived. Why did you choose Superhuman over Gmail or Hey or the regular mail app? Superhuman is, it's, it's like you can, you can, so I, I have a ton of emails on a daily basis. Superhuman lets you basically not even touch your mouse and handle everything between shortcuts, and I think that's why I like it the best. I'm a huge fan of keyboard shortcuts. You have your Keychron that you're jamming on right now, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, right now I've swapped it in for a, um, the Apple one because it makes less noise. <laughs> but yes, normally I'm on the mechanical. <laughs> Good man. Um, we have a quick segment before we jump to the lightning round and then we'll open it up to Q and a, 
you kind of touched on this, but I'm a huge fan of learning in public as well. Mm-hmm. So what, so I guess there's, there's two parts to this segment. The first is what are you currently learning, whether it's work related or just completely life related. And then the second one is more about what you touched on earlier with newsletters. Um, okay. So what am I currently learning? Um, I am, I'm definitely learning how to like sleep better. That's one thing I've been trying to focus on lately. How are you, Um, how are you learning that? Uh, like a lot of like testing things, trying different things before I sleep, looking at if it increases, for example, my REM sleep or decreases, um, you know, eating or drinking different things before I go to sleep to, yeah, basically the same thing. And then, um, you know, seeing, for example, like I've been testing through a bunch of different pillows. (laughs) I can't (laughs) seem to find a really good pillow so much so that I might even like launch a pillow brand just because I can't find a good pillow. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I've been doing a lot of sleep stuff, um, and I don't know, probably a couple of other things simultaneously that I can't necessarily think of right away. Got it. Yeah. Me personally. So this podcast has been a learning experience and I'm always learning on how to ask questions, how to like navigate conversations, how to create different segments completely outside of that. I just recently picked up a guitar. Um, and I, uh, I have zero musical ability or experience or like music, anything. Um, Uh I played, this is how Brown I am. I played a clarinet when I was in seventh grade and I was like seventh chair. There were only seven chairs. Uh, I was seventh out of Uh seven, which means I was the worst clarinet player in Altadadia middle school. Um, Honestly, that's something to be proud of. It's not easy to be the worst. It's easy to be bad, but not the worst. It was very funny because, like, I was the worst clarinet player, but then I was a starting point guard on the basketball team. So it was just a (laughs) very odd odd dichotomy. And then at the same time, I was also, like, first chair on uh, the chess team. So I was very proud, except for basketball. Oh, that's really cool. I was just, like, a weird – I was a weird kid. I I think I still am a weird kid. But I knew nothing when it comes to music, and I was really, really bad at music. I could barely read it as well. Um, Yeah, I I couldn't read the notes. I used to play guitar a lot. I could never do the notes, but if I I had the tabs or if I saw – like if somebody were just teach it, you know, like this is the chord or this is like how you do it, Mm -hmm. um, I was able to do it. But it was hard for me to process – looking at the notes and instantly understanding, okay, that means my fingers go here uh, in like real time with a song. Yeah. So I'm kind of learning that on the fly right now. I just downloaded this app called a musician. Um, and I'm learning like, what is a fret? (laughs) What is a chord? And, uh, I can play the most basic, basic version of, uh, I'm yours by Jason Mraz. Oh, nice. You know what's another fun one to learn early on is um, Don't Let Me Down by the Chainsmokers. Ooh. I'm That's a, a fun one. I'm going to write that down. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any tips on learning guitar? Um, I would say there's no shame in using tabs and learning how to read tabs much faster. What are, um, what are tabs? So if you like Google, like us like Google don't let me down tabs. It's basically like a a cheat sheet for how to play guitar. So you don't necessarily have to read the actual musical notes and then figure out in your head, okay, if this is like a a C, where is this, you know, which finger am I using at which string? 
tabs basically has like six strings on the sheet and it tells you like i think it tells you what number fret to put your finger on so it, it like does the hard work for you whoa okay i just googled it oh my god this is super yeah. cool yeah and, and then after a certain point like you um you know nobody it, when you have like a few cool songs memorized nobody's going to question whether you learn by tabs or not yeah, that's always, I've always found that really interesting. It's like when you're learning anything, not just guitar, when you're learning and you're like in that learning process and you're starting from like a very, very beginner level, um, and let's take guitar as the example, like when you're learning just the basics, no one really cares once you've gotten to a certain point about how you learned things. Exactly. And well, it's, it's like anything, career, yeah. hobbies. Uh, I remember even when like, um, when I started DJing in high school, everybody's like, oh, you're using a computer? Like, that's not that's not legit. You know, I used to use turntables and have crates in my, like, that's cool. But then when you get to a point where, like, you're, you know, you're, you're good at it, nobody questions it. Yeah, and I think, um, we don't have much time to dive into it now, but, like, education has been that thing for me where, like, I went to college, I learned a bunch of stuff, but now I don't do anything related to my degree. And I don't do anything related to that whatsoever, just even for a job. So, um, but yeah, like it's, it, there's that saying that's like, when you're, when you're learning, everyone's willing to help you out. And then over time there will be people that are like, oh, I remember back in the day where I had to learn it this way or like the hard way. And then you'll have like the naysayers that are like, oh, you're not legit right now because you're using a computer versus turntables or like you're using this app right. to learn guitar and you're not going through the hard way that I had to learn. But I think, like, you just use whatever is available to you. Like, that's just much easier um, during learning exactly. the learning process. So the, the second part part of this segment is, uh, before we jump to the lightning round and then Q&A, is you touched on it earlier, but what are some newsletters or things that you use to consume and learn information um, that have provided a lot of value to you uh, that are, you know, public and available to everyone? And uh, feel free to shout out any newsletters or kind of sub stacks, whichever. Um, and even the ones that I think are the most interesting to me are the ones that are not known by a lot of people. So maybe they don't have a lot of subscribers, they don't have a big Twitter presence, et cetera, but they're providing a lot of value whenever they put out new articles. Yeah. Um, honestly, I actually don't read a lot. Um, I tend to learn from things that are like non- uh, for example, like I, I work in direct consumer and CPG and commerce. Mm -hmm. When when it's when it's the the actual domain of something that I'm like, for example, commerce, I like to learn from people. So, for example, I will, you know, um, with other people, or uh, like I I religiously use iMessage for everything, and so <laughs> I'll use iMessage and just have conversations with a ton of operators in the space at any given time um, or group chats or whatever. I don't really read a lot because I feel like the stuff that comes through the newsletters is, you know, it's not as relevant anymore versus if I heard about it two weeks prior to that in a group chat or from an actual operator. Um, and then, and then for things outside of, of like what I work in, um, then I'll, I'll usually read different newsletters, whether it's like, you know, morning brew or like David Perel's newsletter is always really enlightening. Cause I feel like I learn something new every single week. Um, 
or uh, like Packy McCormick's Not Boring Substack newsletter is really good. Um, uh, what's her name? Emily. Forget Emily's last name, but she has one called Chips and Dip. Um, and yeah, I guess I guess just uh, I mean I, I've always kind of been that way where. Um, you know, I don't want to like read about it. I want to go talk to the person writing about it before they push it out in writing. That's actually a, a great, a great thing to remember whenever you're trying to learn something. It's just going straight to the source. When you're going to learn these things, whether it's iMessage or group chats, what's like one general either question or topic that you try to ask these different people? Or does it vary too broadly to, to kind of generalize? Yeah, I, th I think it varies broadly. Um, you know, one thing I try to, like, learn from different people is, like, how have they – like, why why are they, for example, able to crack some kind of um, code? Like, like why was Austin Reef the guy behind Morning Brew? Like, how was his life set up differently? Or what were his interests? Or what was he doing with his time that, like, led him down to that path? Um you know, like trying to figure out like what are the habits that almost led to something that got really big versus just like understanding the thing that got really big. Totally. What's an example of something where you had a conversation with someone pretty early on and then they were telling you about an idea and then you're like, oh, that sounds interesting. Um, and then it blew up or like it got a lot more impressions, engagement, general value for people. Um, mm -hmm. And it kind of surprised you. It was like, oh, people really love that. Yeah. I mean, um, the first example that comes to mind is this guy, Spencer X, who's a beatboxer. Mm -hmm. He, like, uh, Chris and I have known him for, and, you know, he would, like, um, you know, he was in, like, the, he used to live in New York City. And so we were all a part of this, like, New York City kind of creators friend circle. He would beatbox for, like, a group of, like, 10, 15 people. Now he's probably one of the biggest accounts on TikTok. I think he just hit like 44 million followers. Um, and like he has record deals. He has sponsorship deals that I would have never thought, you know, would come to fruition. And for him, he's just like, every time you talk to him, he's just like, yeah, man, this is crazy. Like I would have never thought this got so big. Um, just, you know, he, he uh, like just the way he grew up or the way that he's passionate about it or the, you know, the circumstances he grew up under, this was like his outlet. And so, um, dude, I just, um, went back to the hallway. We're the only room that's active right now in clubhouse. Oh really? Yeah. Hi, hi everybody. Um, yeah, I have a similar thing. By the way, Spencer is part of the TikTok creator fund, right? Oh, he, yeah, I'm sure he is. He's one of the biggest on the platform. Yeah, that's crazy. For those of you that don't know, the, the TikTok Creator Fund is where people actually get paid for the content they create on TikTok. And it's a huge fund for multiple creators, people that you've probably heard of, like David Dobrik are part of it. Um, but one of my friends, Alex, is in a similar situation to Spencer, where uh, he was an actuary, which a lot of people don't know what an actuary is. It's a very, like, b2b focused role where he was working with like car insurance and uh he didn't like it at all so he picked up a camera started doing photo shoots with a couple of friends maybe like four or five friends max um created an instagram called alexander the great and then started coming completely out of his comfort zone and just walking up to strangers in the mall on like in san francisco um and being like can i take 
10, 15 minutes of your time to do a quick photo shoot with you. And it became known as just like stranger photo shoots. And he started doing it around San Francisco. He went to LA a couple times, da da da. And now he's got 10 million followers on TikTok. He's like a professional photographer, wow. mentors people, um, completely changed his life around in a little or around a year, a little, little over a year now. Um, and I met him randomly in the mall when he was at like 2,000 followers. Uh, so 2,000 followers to 10 million now. Uh, and I was like, yo, are you Alex Stemp from TikTok? And he's like, yeah, man, I'm about to do a, a photo shoot. I'm going to grab a bite at Panda if you want to join, if you want to help me shoot like, behind the scenes content um, for like that video part. And I was like, sure, yeah, I'm, I'm down. I was going to go get groceries, but I'll, I'll wait for like an hour. Um, so we like partnered up. I shot some behind the scenes content. He's like position over here. Um, then I, we did a couple other photo shoots together. Uh, and, and now he's, you know, one of my good friends and we get lunch every, every now and then, but he's now getting hit up by a bunch of different people. Um, it's just like crazy to see how you can turn your life around by just like picking up something, doing it every day and then, um, seeing how it pans out. So our, and it's also awesome when it's like something that's, um, yeah, or that person is like the underdog. Oh, totally. The thing that's kind of interesting about him is he's, he's older than me. So he's in his like early thirties and he was able to like turn his whole life around with TikTok, which typically skews younger, um, by kind of just putting himself out there and, and, and being like definitely vulnerable, but at the same time, highly, highly motivated and having this like crazy, crazy work ethic. Um, but, but yeah, I'm super happy for the dude. The next segment of the pod before Q&A is called the lightning round, where I'm going to ask you five lightning round questions. And um, they're this or that question, so they shouldn't be too crazy to answer. Uh, you can provide some justification for why you uh, decided to pick one or the other, um, but the whole idea is for it to be fast. There's going to be one question in here that I will ask you to give um, a five-page essay for why you picked one or the other. You'll be able okay. to this. Welcome to the lightning round. Pancakes or waffles? Pancakes. Dogs or cats? Dogs. DTC or DND? DTC. Do you know what DND is? Do not disturb. Oh, wow. I was thinking Dungeons and Dragons, but okay. DTC. Oh, uh, well, then definitely DTC. <laughs> uh, <laughs> New York or SF? New York. Okay. Um, Knicks or Suns? There's a wrong answer. Knicks. God damn it. All right, Knicks. Suns is the wrong answer. Uh, that's the one I want a five-paragraph essay on. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Absolutely ridiculous. For those of you that's that don't funny. know, I'm a diehard Phoenix Suns fan. I grew up in Arizona. I'm trying to convert everyone I meet to become Phoenix Suns fans. And it's, it's just a, it's a long, arduous journey. And that is the experience of a Suns fan for the last 20-plus years is peaks and valleys. All right, this is a part of the podcast where we open it up to Q&A. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning of the pod, this is a... Hey, Chris, welcome. This is a, a room that is that is being recorded, um, so don't ask anything or, or say anything that you don't mind being recorded. Um, we'll I'll keep this room open for about the next 15, 20 minutes, however long questions go, and um, feel free to ask whatever you want to either me or Nick or anyone else up here. Welcome, Chris. Thanks. I, I have a question. Can I ask yet? Yeah, yeah, go no. ahead. Okay. 
So my question is for Nick. Um, so it's, it, in today's world, it seems like a lot of just tons of tons and tons of DTC companies. So what what actually separates the ones that are around for you know more than three or four years, as opposed to the ones that you know are somehow able to raise ten million dollars on a product that isn't even good, and then they're they're gone in two or three years? What's the real difference? Is it you know network is product knowledge is what what it historically with the brands you've seen which is probably over 100 at least what, what if, what's the difference between ones that survive and and fizzle out in a few years um i think product for sure like in the long game product is is the number one thing that wins i think initially the ones that kind of make it past that um you know whether it's like that 10 million dollar revenue mark or the uh you know the two three year mark it comes down to having some kind of moat within within the business early on. So whether it's within your product, whether it's in your uh, and by product that could mean like you know you you have access to create with some materials that are exclusively yours. Um, whether it's in community, so like Glossier was a great example of a brand that launched with community as their moat in the beginning. Whether it's within your um, uh, distribution, so you know do you have for example. Are you Rare Beauty with Selena Gomez as a founder, where that becomes, you know, the first maybe year or two of sales come directly as in her fan base, or whether it's um, uh, within the actual, like, supply chain and logistics. So do you, you know, you have a setup where you can, for example, acquire a customer and pay, you know, get the customer's money, ship the product, and then you pay your manufacturer back because that gives you, you know, different ways to, to flow cash do you have um do you own your own like fulfillment center where you're not paying outrageous costs for pick pack and ship do you you know is your you know f- for like a lot of the the mattresses, like is your dad does he own a factory that makes mattresses where you're not even buying costs at like manufacturer costs but you're buying it at basically materials costs um and and maybe the factory has like a small equity stake in your company for the outcome one day. Um, so I think like a moat somewhere within the company like that is uh, is what sets a lot of the brands apart. So basically, like an unfair advantage. Is what you're Correct. Yeah, makes sense. That's actually a good tweet. Yeah. That actually makes a lot of a lot of sense because if, if my dad was LeBron James, it'd be really easy to make a basketball right. company. You know, exactly. Like ridiculously, yeah. Yeah. Welcome, Mike. You have a question? Hey, guys. Happy Sunday. Yeah, you too. So, so I guess probably a question more for you, Shargo, but I'm curious, you know, since you started, like, recording and been able to create, like, the, the back and forth, almost more interactive feel, like, what has the response been as opposed to, you know, the way that you went about the podcast, you know, recording before? Like, have you seen, you know, a larger amount of engagement? Has there been people that have enjoyed it more? Just wonder, like, if, if this element versus just being a one-on-one conversation to like one-to-many has really changed uh, what your audience thinks of, of the content. Uh, yeah, so uh, I'll be a hundred percent transparent. I don't have that much insight into audience analytics um, as a podcaster. Is that the right term? Someone that makes podcasts. That sounds right. Um, what has changed, and I've seen this overall, is I've started being a part of a different different community entirely, and I think that was the main goal. So in terms of just analytics and numbers, 
what I've learned is some people tune into podcasts for the guests and some people tune into podcasts for the host. I don't think I'm at a point where like, for example, Joe Rogan could have anyone on his podcast and people will come listen to his podcast because he's Joe Rogan. And then the guests are there to amplify that host. I'm not at that point. I'm more at the point of like the guest kind of drives more engagement and, and um, typically they're guests that are a lot smarter than me and I'm just kind of navigating a conversation. Um, I found myself getting a lot more comfortable with being able to hold long form conversations and, and talk more fluently and actually have like so somewhat interesting questions or at least interesting to me uh, and kind of navigate conversations that way. Um, but yeah, I've been doing it for like the last three or three-ish months, and I, I say this every time I do the outro for the podcast, it's almost like a selfish reason for myself, because I've been told many times that I'm not good at like long-form talking. Like presentations give me anxiety, and like I kind of like shut down a little bit. Uh, so this was mainly just for me to kind of get my long-form thought process out to the world. And then the different formats, similar to what we were talking about during the pod, uh, earlier was um, A-B testing. So I originally didn't want to do daily because I was like, how do I create content on a daily basis? And then I started having like a motivation for myself to create something every day. And it became, let's find a format that works. Some good, some good, uh, some good news had just finished. They had just sold to uh, Viacom, I think. Uh, and I really like the idea of talking about like three things. Like the number three is pervasive across many different industries. Um, so kind of found that format and then very quickly said, if it's just me, I can't get a guest because you know it's, it's a daily thing. People don't have time on weekdays sometimes. Um, it'll just be a 10 to 12 minute long form, here's quick news. And I started putting it out there. It was a long winded answer, but what happened from there is I started meeting a bunch of different people. I got my invite through to, to Clubhouse through someone that listened to the podcast. They reached out to me to be a guest on the podcast. I started getting listeners from like other countries, which blew my mind that like people across the world that I don't know or that literally know nothing about me are taking like 10, 15 minutes out of their day to listen to me blabber on about stuff. Like that is just mind blowing to me. Um, and at the same time, some of them reached out back to me from countries like India, Ireland, Sweden, etc. These are the small like piece of analytics that I can get on Anchor uh, of where people are listening from. And whether they listen to like one minute of the podcast or one episode or multiple episodes, it's just been a great experience overall um, to kind of go through that journey. And it, it, I'm still on that journey, to be quite honest. I took a little over a week off of, of daily for kind of going through my own personal stuff and kind of different things around around life but um but yeah overall it's been great just been a really interesting thing to do during quarantine and um hoping to keep it up great i enjoy listening so thanks appreciate it. hey chris welcome to uh the speaker box hey guys thanks uh this is awesome uh listening to you and uh yeah i, I really enjoy your podcast thanks guys uh, my, i, I I uh, wanted to ask, actually, you know, a couple questions just real quick is, uh, number one, uh, why you decided on, uh, um, you know, Anchor, and if it, if it, you know, if you go to multiple platforms, that's kind of surprised you, you couldn't, you know, tell where people are from, but that's great, you're able to get some analytics, so I think, number one, like, why you're, you know, how you're going about it, and why you decided on Anchor, 
And then number two, um, you know, I kind of have a question for Nick, uh, just, you know, in his investing strategy, uh, you know, kind of wanted to get your thesis. I saw we actually have a company in mind or there's a couple of companies that are similar that we, we focused on in the seed stage. So kind of get your, get your take of how you make a determination um, or, or if you have a thesis you could share. Sure. Should I do it? You want to go first? I'm just going to say, you want to go first? <laughs> yeah, I don't mind going first. You go ahead. Um, honestly, I don't have a like a, a crazy thesis. I think, uh, oh yeah, it looks like we're in house, mod, and maybe a couple others together. Um, but a crazy thesis other than... You know, I, I uh, like I like I mentioned earlier. I try to look for something that really sets the company apart. Um, you know, House is actually a great example where um, where I realized that uh, you know one moat on the marketing side was there's probably nobody who um, there's nobody who's better at like storytelling than Helena. And then when I learned the fact that they own and operate the entire manufacturing process, I was so in um, because that was another moat they had. Um, but I guess like zoomed out from that, the real um, the real thing I asked myself before I write a check is like, all right, if all else were to fail, meaning like, um, you know, they, they feel like they've exhausted anything and like the company's going down, is, is it something where I feel that I could step in with my team, the Sharma Brands team, and could we fit? Could we like save it from a marketing perspective? Obviously, if it's on, if it's just product and whatnot, then that's that's different. But from a marketing perspective or distribution, is that something that through my network and my team and whatnot, like, is that something we could fix? And if the answer is yes, then I usually will um, have no problem writing a check. I have a follow-up question. Um... Since you're an advisor and investor to many different companies, and you mentioned um, storytelling, who are either the companies that you invest and advise in or, or outside of that that are great storytellers? And, and why are they great story, storytellers? I'll answer your question in a minute, Chris. Um, so like brands with great storytelling, um, the first three that kind are maybe four, I could say. Um, House, uh, Brightland, uh, Mod, I think is, is, uh, you know, like a category leader on deep sea and, um, and Black Wolf Nation. Like I think Black Wolf Nation just crushes it from the perspective of how to communicate the guys and like really understand what they want to hear in order to kind of bring them into that world of Black Wolf Nation. Solid. Um, yeah, Chris, your point of why Anchor versus other podcasting platforms, I'm a huge fan of like not really knowing the right way to do anything. Um, I've kind of built my career has just been like tripping into different areas. Uh, so there was a, I think it was 2018, maybe, maybe like early, late 2017 where uh, I was reading the hustle and I wanted like an audio version of the hustle. And I realized that they didn't have a podcast. So I just Googled like how to start a podcast back then. And I don't know if this is, this might be self-incriminating, but I don't really care. Um, I would basically just read the Hustle uh, newsletter and then upload it as a podcast um, for myself to listen to later. So um, a couple of my friends like 
started listening to it and then i would just send them the link that's like hey here's like the hustle in ear format and i think i called it like the hustle ear letter and i just like the simplicity of recording so i i would have a script pre-written by someone else that i was not getting paid from whatsoever and i would just read that which is basically their newsletter and then um, upload it to Anchor and then send that out. So that's originally why I picked Anchor. Was the, it was the first thing that came up when I Googled like how to start a podcast. And I didn't have any listeners. Um, I Maybe like 10, if that, not even 10. Uh, and the majority of the times I would like send this to a group chat and they wouldn't listen to anything. Um, so yeah, I kind of just stick, stuck with Anchor over time, and now that it's gotten a little bit bigger, so now each each podcast gets about like about 50-ish listeners, and then the ones with guests are the ones that are typically more popular. So um, I think the last one I did with Nick was like a, around, around 200-ish, uh, and then the most popular podcast has over 1,000. Um, but yeah, in terms of um, why Anchor over others, it's just the simplicity, and uh, they actually pay you to to uh, put a little ad within um, the platform, within the podcast itself. Uh, so that also kind of helps me when I'm, you know, putting so much time and energy into creating the different content. Uh, it's great to get a little bit of comp back to myself. Um, so, yeah, full transparency. That's why I picked Anchor. Um, if anyone else has any questions, feel free to um, raise your hand. We'll pop you up. Um, we're going to keep the room open and the podcast recording for the next, I would say, five to ten minutes. And then um, we'll close out and um, call it a, a good Sunday. Any other questions, feel free to raise your hand. Uh, Chris, if you have any questions, feel free to ask. Yeah, I'll ask them, but uh, you know, definitely want to hear other people. But I, I think, you know, Nick, I had a question about, um, you know, a lot of unique companies coming out, uh, you know, obviously like uh, companies that are doing uh, unique sodas and, and things like that. So I, I'm kind of curious, you know, in, in a lot of whether it's flavored drinks, whether it's alcohol, whether it's uh, foods, um, you know, if you could share, you know, the when you're looking at a product like that and the total size market, I think the markets can, can be massive, but there could also sometimes there's low barriers of entry. So I'm kind of curious, like, um, you know, how do you pick the winner? Uh, if there's five or six or eight people in a space, uh, do you do you go back to your relationships or, or you know, uh, you shared a little bit about your your brand and being able to you know do it, but oftentimes the timeliness as well. So I kind of want to pick your brand. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there and yeah, beverage is a good place to to look at it as an example because there's so many brands and so many still launching. Um, I still truly believe that there has to be some kind of moat. Uh, within the company, um, you know, we're launching a, uh, a new beverage brand at, at the end of this year for another company. And their biggest moat is that it's backed by, you know, one of the largest athletes. Um, and so, and there's a lot of like, uh, you know, other relationships that come with that. But if somebody were to just like launch a drink out of the blue, I, you know, I, I think like, uh, you know, there's a couple of soda brands that have launched recently where I don't really see a moat other than the fact that they just have a ton of money to spend on marketing and see if it hits. Um, beverage is also kind of an interesting game where um, if you will eat into market share, even a little bit of, of, of one of the incumbents, they actually just pick you up because they don't want to deal with competition. 
Um, and that's if your product is good. If your product's not good, like LaCroix, for example, with Pepsi, they just came out with bubbly and pretty much wiped out LaCroix off the shelves, you know? Um, but I guess, yeah, it comes down to like, is there, is there something truly special about the, the company? And then I think also like super early and you probably have good experience with this, Chris, it's just like understanding is that, is that the right team or is that the right founder to carry this product or build this brand and kind of navigate those waters? Um, you know, depending on the industry, different industries have like different, uh, you know, like mafias almost. And, um, you know, is that the right person who's going to, you know, carry that brand or that product or that company through it? If anyone else has any questions, feel free to raise your hand and we'll pop you up. Um, otherwise, Nick, you have any questions for anyone? Me, Chris, whoever? Or Chris, any questions? I can go on for a while, but I, this, is, this is your guys' podcast, so I, I like <laughs> listening in and to your, to your guys' shows. This is great. Thank you. I have thanks a question for, for yeah. Thanks for joining, Chris. I have a question for Nick. Why the Knicks? I know it's a hot topic for everyone, and they're heavily interested. Well, Shardul, I am what they call a professional, and I have to add this to my LinkedIn, but a professional bandwagoner. However, last year on my birthday, I got a Knicks jersey with my name engraved on the back, and so because and now I live in New York too, so. I feel like I have to support the Knicks. And even if they're a team that's not the best team in the league, I want to be there with them for the wins, the losses, the ups and downs, the lefts and the rights. And we're going to win it. So you said you're a professional when. bandwagoner, but you want to be with the Knicks. And you also said you can be bribed. So if I got you a Devin Booker jersey, would you convert or would you be with the Knicks through thick and thin? You know, let's take this offline. <laughs> actually, a good idea because there's a uh, Devin Booker's in the audience right now, so I actually don't know if I can uh, say that. <laughs> no, he's not. I'm totally joking. Um, but cool. I think Reed has a question. Welcome to the stage, Reed. Um, I don't know. I came in a little bit late, so I didn't know if you uh, talked about this. But Nick, would love to hear your experience on how you got on Pitbull's Instagram team. um it's a long story but the condensed version is um a lot of a lot of hustling and trying to squeeze myself and finesse my way into different opportunities um also kind of just serendipity of meeting the right people at the right time and um and then you know whenever there is that opportunity that serendipitously presents itself, just saying yes and, and um, you know, trying to, like, do as much as I could, uh, you know, even if it meant, like, oh, you're not, you know, for example, like, the thing that led to that was something I was basically working for free. And it was something where I was like, yeah, but, you know, I don't mind working for free because maybe it, it'll end up in something cool. Luckily it did, and pretty quickly. But um, the short story is, is like, just kind of working hard and, um, you know, saying yes to opportunities and, um, and things just magically happen. Very inspirational. Thank you, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually a good question to end on is what do you look for, uh, whether it's people that you're hiring, 
um, or whether it's people you want to work with, what do you look for in uh, either DMs or just general outreach that you get? Uh, what really stands out to you? And conversely, how do you suggest people kind of put themselves out there and try to get the eye of someone who's getting inundated with tons and tons of uh, DMs or emails, et cetera? How do you kind of break through that chatter and um, stand out? Or what do you suggest for that? Um, honestly, it's, it's a bunch of different stuff. Like a lot of the, a lot of the times if I'm hiring somebody or working with somebody, um, typically some point of reference behind it, but if it's, if it's like taking a chance on somebody new, then, um, sounds weird, but like just their overall, I guess, like general vibe. Like I love working with people who know what it's like to work really hard or have to work really hard because their back's up against the wall. Um, you know, I think it provides like a different perspective on life when, when you come from shitty situations and you have to figure out how to get back on your feet. Like those are my favorite types of people to work with. Um, not to say I wouldn't work with people who haven't been through something like that, but, um, but I don't know, like one of the things that I love doing too is like going and doing a, like a rumble or a soul cycle class with people. And just seeing like, you know, how do they attack it? Or like, do they like, do they give it their 200%? Are they like drenched in sweat at the end? Um, you know, I think there's like a lot of correlation between like, you know, are people, the people, are, are, is, uh, if somebody like, if they're half-assing something, do they half-ass multiple things? Or do they like, when they say they're going to commit to something, do they go all in? Um, yeah, there's, but, that, there's that saying of like, the way you do anything is the way you do everything. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think, I think just like generally understanding how, how people think and, and also just even, you know, a big thing for, for me personally, cause it's kind of how I survived in life is just like general street smarts and like being able to quickly, you know, look at things and be, be able to connect the dots. I love working with people who can think quickly and kind of on their feet too. Like I would rather take somebody who can be dropped into a city with no knowledge and figure out their way out versus somebody who scored like, you know, Harvard and Harvard business school, whatever, 4.0, whatever they call it. Um, like I love people who are street smart and people who love to just figure things out. Yeah, totally. Um, I don't have a, I don't have a platitude here to add, but, um, there's that notion of like if you drop a fish out of uh, out of water, can they figure out how to navigate, or do they just flop around? Um, but yeah, yeah, I think that's that's 100 true. In terms of like you getting on Pitbull, working with like different social media stars, trying to like get to Hint, working with Vayner, what have you found for yourself to be a great way that that you've done over the course of your many um, places uh, to kind of cut through the chatter and get to the decision makers? Oh, just always, always shoot your shot. Like, even when you don't think you have a shot, start shooting your shot. Um, you know, whether it's like, whether it's cold emailing, whether it's, you know, <laughs> knowing somebody's going to be at an event and, you know, coincidentally showing up there. Um, <laughs> you know, there's, there's like, there's, there's so many ways to kind of cut through the noise. You just have to like, you have to like step down from the level of, okay, this person's a massive this or a massive that. And just think, all right, like how would how would a human want to be treated? You know, um, like I think there was a good example. I don't know if it was earlier this year or like late last year, when I saw 
Mark Cuban tweeted something on Twitter, and I saw Business Casual, which is Morning Brews podcast. They like responded in a tweet and said, um, "You know, we'd love to get you on our podcast." And I knew there was no way he was even going to ever read that tweet because he probably gets so many mentions. But I know Mark Cuban responds really fast on email. And so I just sent him an email and I was like, hey, one of my best friends, Austin, runs this company called Morning Brew. He has a podcast. They have over a million downloads. And uh, would you be willing to jump on today or tomorrow? And he, within like two minutes, responded yes. And Mm. so it was just like cutting the fat, basically, and just getting to the point. Um, Also, if somebody's somebody's inbox is getting flooded, they don't want to read your essay of an email. They want to read like two or three lines and that's it. Yeah, as someone that but yeah, I guess always shooting your shot. The the great Michael Scott, um, I think my favorite character on the office said, uh, "You miss one hundred percent of shots that you don't take," which applies to drinking yeah. as well as just general life as well. That's so true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but cool, that's a great note to end the podcast on. Um, thanks, Nick, for being on, and thank you, Chris and yeah, Reed, thank you. and uh, Mike Shapiro and, and others that came up and asked questions. Um, this was a fantastic conversation, and as always, this is a, the recording of the Three Good Things podcast. Thank you, the listener, for taking out 10, 20, I guess this is an hour, it's a little bit longer, <laughs> time out of your day to listen to this podcast, and uh, anything you'd like to shout out, Chris, or Chris, or, or Nick, if you want, want to shout out anything, feel free. Make sure you hit that subscribe button if you listen to this episode. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thanks. Um, there's no subs- It's a follow button, but yeah, sure. <laughs> oh, follow. Make sure you hit that follow button if you came here just for my episode. <laughs> um, also, if you want to listen to Nick talk about DTT stuff later this week, he's on Shopify's um, podcast webinar yeah it's, I think it's, a it's webinar. their new show actually it's called resilient retail yep i uh i'm doing a show with um kristen lafrance who's uh, who heads up the content there and Haley LaSavage, who is the uh editor and main writer for retail brew which is a segment of morning brew so you can catch uh nick on that show on thursday looks like it's at 1 p.m edt Um, And in terms of this podcast, we actually have another special episode coming out tomorrow with the fantastic Kat Cole. Um, Oh, I love Kat. I'm I'm so happy that I actually, we've been trying to figure out a time to to record the podcast for over two months now. Um, But I'll be um, hosting the room like I'm doing here in Clubhouse with with Kat. Uh, We'll dive into kind of her career, her background how she approaches office hours that she hosts every week here, um, and then just general stuff like Burning Man, the experience that we had with uh, her sending me Cinnabon, what went wrong, what went great, stuff like that. So um, I'll put that on the calendar for tomorrow with Kat. Uh, And with that, we'll uh, close out the podcast. Thank you guys for tuning in, and I will see you next week. Tomorrow, actually.